1: Welcome, everybody, to Nightlight. My thanks to Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro, as always. Please check him out on the Internet under Native Storytellers. He and his wife are preserving history in their own unique Native American way, and it's something that you should listen to and learn from, because spoken history predates written history and is often even a lot more accurate. <clears throat> so tonight... This is a very exciting show for me because this is material that has not been out there um, uh, in the common flow of of information, and it's fascinating to me. And so I hope you'll hang in there with me because it really is insightful and and interesting and thought-provoking. Tonight I have Edmund Marriage on with me, and we'll be talking, delving into the material presented by the Golden Age Project, a part of the Patrick Foundation, which is an independent research network to provide a down-to-earth, common-sense base for all those open-minded people who seek the highest standards of information on human origins, history, and human relations subjects. Edmund is an an extensive historical researcher and has revealed a single advanced secular benevolent source for all religions. His Golden Age Project, inspired by the work of Christian and Barbara Barbara Joy O'Brien, promotes the recovery of past knowledge in order to resolve many of today's problems. He believes that reestablishing high standards of training and knowledge for all important roles Forms a priority in establishing good government and successful social organizations and cohesion. You can find his amazing work after the show, please, at www.goldenageproject.org.uk. And I highly recommend you look at it because it is fascinating material. We're going to be focusing tonight on the origins of Jesus and his twin brother Thomas, and I know that's a surprise to most of you, Um, it was to me too, and how closely they are linked to the British Druids. He has amazing information. It's interesting. It's thought-provoking, and it's insightful, and I highly encourage you to check out the website and listen carefully because there is information here that I'm sure is going to be enlightening and certainly thought provoking to all of you. Welcome to the show, Edmund. Thank you. Well you're welcome. It's um I have to say that I've read the uh the O'Brien book, The Genius of the Few, The Story of Those Who Founded the Garden of Eden, and you've been kind enough to share with me some PowerPoints that you've done and um the information is amazing. And I'm so excited that you're here to discuss this information with me. And um I, I know saying that, that Jesus had a twin brother is is kind of a shock to people, but um with the with the background work that you've done and the O'Brien's have done, it it uh it makes some sense, especially the link to the Druids and I've often thought that the message of Jesus was was very closely Linked to and in, and certainly in Congress with the teachings of the Druids that predate everything almost. So, how do we start this? I mean, I think basically we should start out with Mary and her family so that you know we can make sense of the fact that Jesus had a twin brother.
2: Well, thank you. The um, this starting point for the whole Project was Christian O'Brien. Christian O'Brien was an incredibly successful exploration geologist. He was the man who discovered oil in Libya. He rewrote the history of the Rocky Mountains. And while he was doing his exploration in the area of of Suma, he found clay tablets on the top of a mound, which later he was credited with discovering as uh, as Zuburut. And the key point here is that he's the only person who has properly translated the ancient cuneiform. Um, Samuel Kramer hoped it would be done in 1926, and O'Brien set about, when he retired from the oil industry, to translate that cuneiform. Now, by translating the cuneiform, he found that the Sumerians had left a very accurate and detailed record of uh, the Garden of Eden, uh, the place run by the Elohim. Now, the word Elohim we've used for God singular, whereas it is a plural word, and El means bright, And and the second part of that word means shining. So we're talking about our own Christians busily worshipping the shining ones um, and yet calling them Elohim, singular, when in fact it was Elohim plural. And from that work we've got now a very thorough um, survey search um, um, exploration of the signing ones, at at action and work way back before massive cosmic catastrophe at 10,850. And also, we've also got a second very important uh, avenue opening up, which is Christian O'Brien's discovery of the island of Atlantis. Being one of the world's leading geologists, he was able to go to the Azores and get all the uh, maps from the Portuguese admiralty and to um, do all the work needed uh, to prove that the area of the Azores, the area besides of Spain, had sunk catastrophically um, 3,000 feet on one side maybe 5,000 feet on the other. And so he proved beyond all reasonable doubt that our ancestors had occupied this very large area of land in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which was uh, almost certainly destroyed by the movements in the Earth crust, which followed the cosmic uh, catastrophe in 10,850, which was very large parts of a comet, which had exploded in 39 B.C., the heavy debris being last to arrive and causing the most damage, Uh, and much of the debris coming in over the Hudson Bay, moving the earth on its axis by 14 degrees, which is what is recorded in the Great Pyramid. Um, And then uh, through the rest of the work that we've been talking about here, um, he has looked very hard at religion and what Jesus was saying about religion. And then we find that Thomas comes in here because Thomas clearly appears to be the person who knows Jesus best. He's the person who produced all the early works on Jesus' teachings, um, and he certainly um, was there with Jesus way after the crucifixion. Um, the acts of Thomas in the St. Catherine's Monastery Library makes it very clear that Thomas was having regular meetings with Jesus in India um, way back, way on and Jesus lived to I think an age of about 86 and Thomas was there all the time he knew the most about Jesus and they really did look uh, if you look at the historical aspects here as though they were very closely related, and of course the um, exciting that's coming because I'm going to tell you what happened um, and the story there. Now, we are we all bled to believe um, a, a lot of different things about religion, but it's very important to remember that uh, Jesus was extremely well connected with Joseph Rama Theo. Who, in fact, ran the trade routes for the Romans from Rome, and that was done through the court of Herod, and the court of Herod had apartments within the court of Augustus. So Joseph, um, the guardian of Mary, was extremely powerful and important individual working very closely with the Herod family and in particular with Augustus. Now, the situation here, uh, it always seems um, incredulous that somebody should make the claim that they, Jesus and Thomas, were twins. And um, several very competent historians have raised that particular point and, of course, been rubbished by everybody. But the important point here is that if you read the Talmud, there are seven or maybe eight references to somebody called Jeshua, which is the correct name for Jesus, Y-E-S-H-U-A, Jeshua, Ben, son of Pantera. So this is a a very important point because when we get to Jesus in the temple in Rome, we've got the, the priests and the hierarchy in Rome being very suspicious of Jesus because in our own best books he's described as son of a Roman soldier um, and that's why there was so much hostility or principal reason for the hostility between the high priests in the temple um, who wanted Pilate to get rid of him um, because um, as I say um, he, he was not a Jew uh, 100% Jew, he was 50% Jewish, although his mother Mary was on the line of David she was very well educated um, she was entitled to the fortunes from the Herod family um, there's a point here too that, that hereditary um, claims Passed through the female line in certain areas. But anyway, the point is that it was quite normal for her, as a princess whose grandmother was married to one of the British kings, it's quite normal for her to be right at the heart of the court of Herod and right at the heart of the court of Augustus. Now, in 8 BC, we have a situation. And if anybody reads Alan Massey's wonderful book on Tiberius, they get a lot of clues because he is the one author, in my opinion, who's really got to grips with what a brilliant soldier and a brilliant man Tiberius was. And later we find Tiberius um, (laughs) suggesting to the Senate that Jesus is given a a title within the Senate, to go along with what was called Pax Romana, and they wanted to give Jesus this title because of all the efforts he made to continue Roman peace. That's what Pax Romana meant. Now, when very attractive soldier, who was very upset and lonely because his own wife was behaving, um, or his had been set, set a problem by Augustus. Augustus wanted him to marry his own daughter, Julia, who was a complete nightmare. Um, And Alan Massey describes all this extremely well in his book. But the point was that it was clear that when he returned from his campaign in Germany, he was a pretty unhappy man. And uh, and that is where he undoubtedly met um, Mary um, and obviously, like so many people at that time, or even this time, had a fling. And the result of the fling was twin boys, which to Romans was absolutely fantastic because this takes us back to Romulus and Remus, and, then, and uh, we find that Tiberius spent a fortune on restoring the, the temple in Rome to the two uh, heavenly twins, so to speak. Um, lots of other clues um, uh, T- Tiberius was uh, being informed of Jesus' every move um, he had a wonderful letter from King Abgar V from Edessa, who wrote and said, nah, I hear you're curing people of illness, I'm not feeling very well, come and heal me and Jesus wrote back and saying no, I'll send you one of the disciples but um, um, I've got a lot of work to do jobs to do and I've got a report back to he who sent me that's one of the many clues here um, of Tiberius um, having two fathers, a heavenly father and an earthly father Um, and uh, there are other very important clues here because we find out at the time of the crucifixion uh, Pontius Pilate um, was watching very closely what was happening and reporting back to Tiberius. Now, if Jesus had been a Roman, that would be pretty natural, especially if Tiberius was the father of Jesus. But uh, the whole point here is that uh, if he'd been a Jew, he wouldn't have got a look in time Pontius Pilate wouldn't have been interested. And the key point here I'm making is that Pontius Pilate had no choice but to make it look as though Jesus had been crucified because he only had 125 Scots Guard soldiers, and we had maybe, I don't know how many, well, it was a million or more people, but a, um, in for the festival of the Passover, but an enormous number of people. Um, and therefore, what he did, quite sensibly, in my opinion, was to make it look as though Jesus had been crucified and, and, and we have the record, too, that Jesus was only on the cross for six hours. He, no nails were used. He was tied on the bar, or bars probably, um, for six hours. Um, and he, he had a sponge given him to um, refresh his mouth, uh, and he also had, apparently, a spear put in his side on the uh, ribs, which is something that you would do to make sure somebody hadn't got too much fluid in their lungs. And the man but, but who came can I interrupt to for a, the body...
1: Can, can I interrupt for a second? Because, you know, everybody, you know, the Bible has reported that there were nails. So where is the information that he was tied on the cross and not nailed to the cross come from?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, the point is that you have to put yourself in the position of Tiberius Caesar, who took complete charge of the crucifixion. And uh, and this is obviously a debatable point, but remember, within two or three days, Jesus was back right into a normal state of mind and condition and body, and teaching his inner circle of disciples, which consisted of men and women, and imparting the knowledge which is recorded in the path of light by the disciples' scribes, Matthew, Philip, and of course Thomas. And so we've got a number of factors here which greatly assist us. One more other point I would make is that um, the greatest scholar on Druidry, the Reverend R.W. Morgan, who wrote a book, on St. Paul in Britain, in about eighteen eighty um, mm-hmm. he made the point that the Sermon on the Mount was pure druid teaching and philosophy very, very important so here's Jesus arriving um, in uh, twenty nine a d at Capernaum on lake Tiberius now, and he was preaching and teaching druidism. And we can go back to the twin boys and find that they were incredibly well educated because of their connections with Joseph Auromatheo and Mary. And they immediately went when Mary was seen to be pregnant, went to the Essenes, and the Essenes were the people who were the locals in that area of Copernicum and they were the people most likely to to support Jesus. And so he went to that support base. And when Mary was pregnant, she took the twin boys to the Essenes. Um, and then we have a situation where Joseph was extremely well prepared to look after her with ships from Caesarea to Alexandria and transport all the things That were available to a man running the trade routes for the Romans. And so we find Jesus and Thomas being educated for over three years with Philo of Alexandria, who was a key figure in history and very much a figure, um, we call him the Pythagorean. But the boys would have learned a great deal from him about good government. And, And that's what we find many people saying about Jesus. He was really interested in good government. Now, one of the things that happened is that when the boys were 12 years of age, and they were coming backwards and forwards to Rome at that time to be educated with Augustus um, in 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 Rome, um, Geoffrey of Monmouth, who I believe was an excellent Catholic historian, said he thought that Jesus was in fact. Augustus' son, Um, but we find so many um, coincidences and common statements which can lead us to believe that both Jesus and Thomas were sent by Augustus and Tiberius to be educated in Britain uh, under the Druids, and they were sent to replace two boys who'd been killed in Germany under Tiberius' father. And so they were um, sent to Tendrantius, who was the uh, very successful king of the Ornai, who was very much involved in trade and business with Rome. And what Jesus did uh, at the age of 16, um, and Augustus had told them to take Roman weapons with them, he had actually had a peaceful treaty with the Trinovantes, who were based at Colchester. And Jesus made his uh, headquarters at Colchester um, by combining the Cachalaborni and and the Trinovanti tribes. And Colchester was, was Camulon, or you can soon change that to Camulot or Camelot. And so what he was doing at Camelot was using a round table which he would have been advised to do by Philo in Alexandria um, and that's the, and the key point about the round table was that was what the Sumerian kings did, they always had round tables, people sat in a circle facing each other they didn't have two sides of an arguing debate uh, and, and then when we had the final treaty with um, the Roman emperor who was persuaded to come to Britain in 44 BC with an army thanks to Jesus having many sons and one of the sons being a real troublemaker he would try to persuade um, um, Caligula to bring an army and Caligula's troops ended up by cutting seashells on the beach but there was very rapidly a treaty between um, um, the key figure at that time um, and in fact it, it, it says seven or eleven of the British tribes but Jesus had uh, been appointed by the Jewish Council to the, the um, Pendragon king of kings of the Botanic Isle because he had so impressed all of them at the very early stage and so here was a, a young man and by the time he was 17, 18, 19, he really knew his stuff, and he was uniting the country and doing all the good things that fell apart when Nero came along and when Roman order completely broke down. And we know what what happened to the the tribe of Polycia and her husband, Proustus. Uh, Proustus actually left half his kingdom to the Roman Emperor. That's how highly respected the Roman Emperors were at that point. And then, of course, the administrators in Britain and the people who hated Druids uh, vented their spleen on killing as many Druids as possible and being as badly behaved as you can imagine with Bodicea and their daughters. And... Everything seemed to turn around at that point. But Jesus had been long gone. Uh, he, Tiberius had wanted him to go to Judea to sort out the problems in Judea, which were a running sore. And they, in the end, they were only resolved by a slaughter from the Roman army. So here we have um, actually incredible people doing a very good job um, who didn't, pull it off because of the state of the Roman Empire and the attitude of the Roman emperors and the fact that it wasn't a true political system that was ever going to work. So in a nutshell, we have a story where we're actually left with fantastic knowledge about the journeys of the soul and the spiritual knowledge that eluded everybody for so long. Um, and we also can learn so much from what Jesus actually said. He he wasn't a miracle maker much. Everybody seems to, you know, um, to disguise him or claim he made miracles. But his basic interest was the government and people should be um, true to one another. Um And and therefore we have in reality a fantastic story which ends with Jesus and Thomas living to old age and setting up a religion, Church of the East, which lasted a thousand years and which Muhammad uh, insisted through fatwas that Muslims respected equally the Church of the East. Another very important point. But history hasn't been kind, as far as religion is concerned, hasn't been kind to the people. And it's always been the source of people killing one another. And I'd just like to mention that 2,000 of the most intelligent monks in Britain, at Bangor-on-D, were slaughtered um, while the uh, man sent by the Pope Um, sat there in a chair and watched it happen. And then we have Charlemagne beheading four and a half thousand people, factions, who wouldn't convert to Roman Catholicism. They're just two of the stories. But it's been a a terrible 2,000 years for the human race. Um, and, And the sooner people know about these truths and can see what is required thanks to Jesus and also Thomas by the way Thomas was the patron saint of Masons and there are images in him holding a set square and he was an incredibly competent individual much the same way that Jesus was too and totally practical so that's my version of it all Uh, please look at it and study it. And um, if we can bring about change and and realize that we only want one religion, and, and that religion should be, as the Druids were, people who believed in peace and not war, no war at all. And they were always doing everything they could to stop people fighting. And you think where we've got to in the last 2,000 years, it's been it still is a disaster thank you
1: <laughs> well that's that's an amazing dissertation um it it feels though so, you know people are going to to question where does you know the element of the virgin birth and the trinity where where does that come into any of this i mean was it was it the element of they made a religion out of whole cloth, or because his teachings are, are are amazing and his philosophies are amazing, but yet you don't you don't hear a lot of that from any of the churches, any of the Christian churches, for sure.
2: Well, I think you only have to remember the Synod of Whitby, the Senate of Whitby, which is one of the most important situations where the British Church stood on one side and the Danes from Northumberland and Kent stood on the other side. And the the Danish king, Northumberland, passed the casting vote, which dismissed British Christianity and put in its place Roman Catholicism. Um, I've never known anywhere in my life, uh, from a medical records or anything else, where there is such a thing as a, a virgin's birth. Um, and I think if we look at so much of the material, um, we could actually dismiss so much of the church propaganda, which they could get away with um, going back in time but I don't think they can get away with it any longer because it doesn't stack up, doesn't make sense. And so um, we're looking here and trying to present here a far more sensible story about Jesus, his family, the Romans, everybody else, so that we can get back to the truth. The Druid motto was the truth before the world. Absolutely essential, and it's the same today. We seem to be losing our way on what is the truth. As Pilate said four times to Jesus, what is the truth? That is the Druid um, uh, statement in a court hearing. And so um, uh, I don't have any difficulty um, promoting this particular uh, concept because I happen to believe in it. And I've mm-hmm. done a great deal of work to make sure that I don't make a fool of myself.
1: <laughs>
2: and so I'll answer any questions from anybody.
1: <laughs> well, there's, there's um, a great deal of evidence to support the fact that the first Christian church was in Great Britain.
2: Yes, that's right. We We've actually... I, I find in my, in my records loads of Catholics who were brilliant men now, I mentioned Geoffrey uh, of, of Monmouth and then there was Polydor Virgil who was the um, wrote a history of Britain for Henry VII and then Cardinal Baronius the best of a lot now those three staunch Catholics and Cardinal Baronius almost became Pope and, and, and they all understood what I'm saying, and, and, they, and they know that Christianity started in Britain. Well, if Christianity started in Britain, who was who started? And we're right back to the fact that it was Jesus and Thomas principally, and with the help of their children, many children, um, Caractacus, who became the um, uh, key. Um, administrator when Jesus went to Judea, um, a high king um, and then you had a lot of family links and contacts there and Thomas was actually um, went to take over the, um, the, the territory of the Atrobates at Silchester when the head of the Atrobates decided to go back to France because they'd fleed originally to Britain when the Romans were uh, sacking France. And the British, in fact, sent 50,000 troops to support the French against the Romans. Um, and they they went to the Veneti mostly, a tribe on the west coast of France who had wonderful ships with um, probably war in sails and, and great strength, which could sail and do anything within the Atlantic in the, the worst weather. And the Romans were absolutely amazed when they saw it. So there was a great history of friendship between France and Britain and all those European countries uh, under, under the Druidism flag. And as I say, it had been around for a long while. I think we can say quite conclusively that, that the Druid principles Ethics, which Jesus expounded so well, go right back to what we now know about Atlantis. Uh, So there's another aspect to this whole story.
1: Well, who were the Atlanteans then? Who were they? Who were they? Yeah, who were the Atlanteans? Where did they come from? Because they were highly. A, techn- a highly technical technological um, culture from, from everything that I've read
2: well a lot's been going on on our planet for 100,000 200,000 years uh, the brains were big enough to do clever things, there have been lots of different sized brains and people and certainly uh, Plato's records of Atlantis are very interesting I'm not saying so that Plato knew it all I think he yeah, had far more advanced than we really could possibly believe Um, 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 and so um, one only has to look at the sighting of that large area of land in the middle of the Atlantic and see that it would have been a fantastic climate um, and harbors um, and it would have housed a a civilization that certainly could have been as good as anything we've had since uh, and I mean that. And um, uh, you know, things come and go, but we have to remember that so much that has been good has been destroyed by disease, by climate change, by people fighting, by all sorts, all sorts of reasons why civilization fails to really get a strong hold. Did,
1: did the Druids not have any records at all? I mean, when you look at the records that were were kept by the Essenes, they were preserved in, you know, in jars and caves and 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 the Sumerians of course, you know, had their tablets. Did the Druids not have any sort of written form?
2: No, they they they, they one of the features of Druids was to um carry memory and not paper. Um The other thing, of course, is that so much was destroyed when the Roman armies went into Anglesey. Um, There may well have been a lot of records there, Um, but what we know from the technological sophistication, standard units of measurement, um, great knowledge of the stars, from Bobman Moore, a fantastic observatory. with some in the region, 90 very large stone cairns. And my belief is that they would have been able to tell the Egyptians to start building pyramids because there was a great risk of cometary debris coming in at 2,300 BC. And we have this cyclical cometary debris issue through the Torrid stream. And our modern-day professors and experts have warned us that you can expect something serious every 2,000 years and we're due to have cometary debris problems quite soon on the record sheet. Um, So um, the the, the difficulty is that when you totally destroy a group of people because you don't happen to like them or they don't fit into your plans, um, there's not much you can do about that knowledge. Knowledge is lost. so many archaeologists and specialists we're all searching for that knowledge we all want to know more we all want to know know why was it that the pyramids were built Um, what did they tell us well they tell us that the earth was moved by 14 degrees on its axis and the pyramid is perfectly aligned north, east, south, west and the star shafts point to where uh, the, the two major stars were before the Earth was tipped on its axis, and after um, the Sphinx compound has um, is, is recently been shown uh, overwhelmingly to have been very much older than the Great Pyramid, and with water, water worn sides to that. Sphinx Enclosure, Um, it points due east to around about 9000-8000 BC, Um the people at that time knew exactly where due east was, um, and so um, it, 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 it's part of that um, uncovering the, the knowledge that existed. Um, the other thing to, about the, the Sphinx is that uh, some people feel that uh, it was, in fact, a cheetah because a cheetah is a wonderful pet and, and has all the <laughs> characteristics of cats and dogs. <laughs> um, but uh, as I say, then we've got so much happening in the Americas, and uh, my other talk is about the shiny ones and their sophistication and why they were at. Go back when it was extremely cold, and we couldn't farm when it was very cold, and so we had to be hunter gatherers again. It's um, a, a, a wonderful story. I can, all I can say is I'm loving what I'm doing. <laughs> if people think I'm wrong, I don't mind because I'm, I'm enjoying it. <laughs>
1: Well, that's, that's the most important part of everything. I, I want to ask you about Stonehenge, though. Was that the Druids, or was that another culture or another um, society?
2: Stonehenge is interesting and very important. Um, the whole point about that area was that it was cattle grazing country, and the one thing that people needed was meat, and grass for meat. And grass-to-meat is much the best way of handling the environment. The dung comes out the back of the animals, and it creates enormous quantities of insects, it refurbishes the soil, and makes all number of plants grow. And it's one of the most interesting subjects at the moment, because we're being told we've got to eat less meat. There's not a scrap of evidence or reason why that is so. And what we actually need to do is learn how to slaughter our meat humanely uh, and properly um, and bleed them out properly, and the slaughter process is what's gone wrong. And uh, I I can't find meat that I would like to eat because it's not been slaughtered properly, but that's another story. But the Druids were on top of all that. They had to move those blocks, which the big blocks came from not very far away, the really interesting blocks are the blocks that come from the area of Paselli and they were quite unique and they were, uh, they were stones and rocks naturally occurring, only place in this whole country where you find that type of rock and they are created by cometary debris impacts, great heat um, and that's a very, very important point. And then you ask, why did they take all the trouble to remove those much smaller stones and the big stones to the Salisbury Plain and then change them from a the big circle to a smaller circle? And uh, the reason for that is that Stonehenge was a central meeting point, administration point, headquarters, and uh, an education centre and a medical centre. And one of the things we've learned... About monatomic elements, which these stones are made of, the small ones, is that if you sit in a ring of them, you actually can balance your brain waves. And if you balance your brain waves, your body becomes balanced. And your body is brilliant at healing itself. Now, that still hasn't been accepted or talked about much, but it's one of the clues. And of course, why did people come all the way from all over Britain to Stonehenge? Um, and uh, what were they doing? And um, it's pretty clear that we had people from all over the continent coming up as a main centre. The other point I think is, always amazes me is the fact that anybody putting up big stones in a circle with lintels and tongue and mortise grooves, etc., clearly is somebody who had the brain power to put a timber roof on top. And there were two people who did actually make a model roof for Stonehenge. And so my belief was that Stonehenge had a very large roof, maybe a lot of accommodation in that roof, but that was a principal part of the whole thing. And then we look at the, uh, not very far from Stonehenge, we see the cursus. Now, any farmer will tell you that if you've got cattle and sheep and pigs and animals, You bring them in at night, particularly if there's lots of wild animals around, as there were uh, in those days. And so people brought their animals into those areas um, so the animals could have shelter overnight. They had water arranged for them there. uh, And and, uh, then they go out to graze in the day with people looking after them. Now, this happens all over Africa. You can see the remains of similar structures. All over the world, where people who use grazing animals. And uh, the Africans, uh, and particularly the, uh, the Maasai, they bring their cattle in at night. And if you look at their farms, they have a number of enclosures. So when the cattle come in at night and they've had a full belly, the first thing they do when they come in at night and relax is want to uh, um, get rid of their dung. And the dung is the most marvelous stuff for the fertility of the soil and that made sure that the areas where they brought the cattle in at night provided beautiful soil for all the vegetable crops and other things that they needed. So most of these issues are resolved by farming principles and same with Avebury. Avebury for example um, the whole area was a massive uh, cattle grazing area Um, And the problem about Avery was that um, there was water running there and springs there, but they had to be able to make sure they could store a massive quantity of water when they had their big markets, which meant loads of cattle coming in up each of the avenues. There was an in avenue and an out avenue, um, taking animals from the Ridgeway or back to the Ridgeway. And so these were all practical farming problems, which... Any farmer today would recognize if he looked at that big picture to see what people were doing. So they had their meat, they had their sheep, they had their wool, um, they had a, a number of farm animals, but also they knew how to manage the land and look after the land. And that's something we have almost forgotten now. We just don't understand the fact that the more grazing animals you have, the more diversity of plants very, very
1: right, <clears throat> but but who built Stonehenge? Sorry, who built? I that. Stonehenge.
2: Who built it? Well, the, yes. the, the, the master, build, the master builders, amongst the druids.
1: Oh, okay, that's that's where I was going. Because I, I yeah. truly did, you know, I've, I will always believe that the druids were responsible for it.
2: the the Druids were fantastic people and and they had a hierarchy we always had these hierarchies but you had the best possible people running the country and the point was just very little war Druids uh, was a system which very rarely allowed fighting Uh, if there was two armies lined up, one or the other it would be a woman Druid or a man Druid then they'd say, stop. Uh, If you're the leader of that lot, you can come and fight the leader of this lot. That usually meant my of and then would fight.
1: (laughs) Well, they certainly had a philosophy that that has stood the test of time, and it's certainly been passed down teacher to teacher, master to master, and certainly... The philosophy is there at the, at the core of every religion out there. It's just that there's so much dogma built up on top of the, the truth that sometimes the truth doesn't even get through.
2: Well, their motto was the truth before the world. We have a uh-huh. very solid record of being regarded as missionaries from Sidon in about 3,900. Uh, and later on, we we're getting people talking about the fact now they realize there was this place at Atlantis, that the Druids were the, uh, the ran the politics and the so-called religion in Atlantis. So we, we've had it all, but we've, we've had so many natural catastrophes and so many pressures that we've lost so much. That's the point. And then we get a whole lot of amateurs trying to run a country. And I don't need to tell you, if we look back 200, 300, 400 years, the muddle we've been making of everything. We think we're clever.
1: Well, we've had a number of mass destructions and had to start back from a single cell uh, <clears throat> at least five times that they have on record. And we may be slating ourselves for another mass destruction. That's That's for absolutely sure because, you know, it's, it's, it's no longer don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It, it appears that everybody's throwing out the bath, too. So um, yeah. going back uh, going yeah. back from scratch is, is something we've done before, but I'd hate to think that we're doing it now.
2: Yeah, we've, 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 we've evolved from a very small core of people. And I think that one of the things that interested me, and I've got it in my other presentation, is that if we're looking at colour, um, colour is point zero zero one of the genetic makeup. Uh, you know, only more people would realise that. It's it, utter nonsense to use colour in any kind of argument or debate that somebody isn't as good as somebody else. Um, quite extraordinary, but this is, you know, blind ignorance. I think.
1: Well, I do thank you so much for all of your information. I'm noticing that we're very close to the end here, and I want to I want to recommend that people absolutely um, check out your your website. And it's www.thegoldenageproject.org.uk. dot dot org. dot uk. The material there is fabulous, and the books that you have there are fabulous as well. I'm, I'm looking very forward to, at a later time, getting into The Shining Ones with you because I'm fascinated with them. And I think it will make a, a fabulous show.
2: Well, I'm, I'm thrilled that you've allowed me on. I'm thrilled that you're grasping um, what in my life have been the most important things Largely because of my good luck in meeting quite exceptional human beings who just weren't being listened to, all oh, their clients. But we have to search for the truth, and the the druid motto was the truth before the world. Absolutely crucial.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, and, and finding that truth, and certainly the research that's been done and, and the O'Brien certainly did a phenomenal amount of it um, is fascinating as 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 is the the um, the shining ones and how they created the Garden of Eden and we will go into that at a later date because I'm fascinated by all of that material as well
2: yeah, that's incredibly important because. It just shows what they did and the pressure were against them. They knew that sea levels had risen by 200 feet or an amazing amount. And so they had to pick somewhere up in the mountains. And they chose a perfect site, which was just below Mount Hermon, where they had snowmelt water to irrigate, irrigate their crops for the first six months of the year. And they had all the building materials. And they had, of course, Wonderful cedar forests, which they utilized, and the one Enki was the second in command and and he started um, the work at Jericho, which is our oldest recorded town and Enki had to deal with these practical problems like um, irrigation, lime, and very important. Um, And then we have this very rapid change over a short time from rather primitive houses to quite sophisticated rectangular houses with plastered floor, lime plastered floor. And we have lime being used for the crops, fertilizing the crops. And if we look at all the agricultural evidence, we find that all the major crops, including maize, um, all started their lives in that section of the Levantine Corridor, tied uh, to Karsag and Mount Hermon down to Jericho.
1: Well, it's, it's fascinating information, and we're going to get into that um, the next time we get together. Um, and if anybody wants to read a, a good book before that show, uh, The Shining Ones, is the name of the book, and you can get it at uh, thegoldenageproject.org, and um, it's fascinating material, and I highly recommend people check it out. So thank you and again, about- Edmund, I- first. Go ahead.
2: It's available It's available as an e-book, too, remember. So you've got some uh, yeah. e-books, and you've got um, the Wilburson Heart uh, and some soft copy books, but... I'm just expanding the library of all what I regard to be the most important books available at very low prices to gather this information.
1: Well, I thank you so much for being here. We'll send everybody out to get the books because they are fascinating. I want to thank you again so much for being here tonight. Um, And I want to have everybody make sure they check in tomorrow. For mark show and then again next monday for me and somewhere in between the hieronymuses are going to put up the show too so thanks for being here everybody and good night